0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast feed for Cut to Black, a new podcast about how we experience television. Once again, this is not an episode of Cut to Black that you are about to hear. It's an episode of my other podcast, The Boiled Leather Audio Hour, in which my co-host Gretchen Felker Martin and I once again go through the history of the new golden age of television, our favorite shows, shows that we're not so keen on. We feel like it's a good introduction to where we're coming from, so we wanted to put it in the feed for Cut to Black. And in that spirit, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic for such publications as The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Vulture, and Decider. And joining me once again is... I'm going to call you my illustrious co-host. I hope Stefan doesn't take offense to that. But you are illustrious and you are my co-host, Gretchen Felker Martin. Welcome back.
1: Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me on again.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I really enjoyed our first chat about the new golden age of television.
1: Oh, me too.
0: Yeah. um, Everyone, if you haven't heard that one, hit pause on this bad boy. Go back a few episodes and listen to our enormous, it's like two hours of conversation about television. It was like a double-sized season premiere from the days when they did that, which I kind of miss. I kind of miss two hours of uh, Megan Draper singing Zooby Zooby I
1: was just thinking about a little kiss.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we realized after we finished it and listened back to it, that there were some shows that we only talked about a little and some major shows that we didn't talk about at all. So this is sort of a sequel episode to that, where we're just continuing in the vein that we started and trying to tackle a few shows that slipped through the cracks last time. The biggest of which I think by far, a show that we didn't even so much as mention
2: is The Wire. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your bed. Well I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track. If you walk with Jesus, he is gonna save your soul. You gotta keep the devil who had down in the hole.
0: And I think there's a couple reasons for that. First I have to say, The Wire was always my least favorite of the canonical dramas, or certainly the big three at HBO of The Sopranos, The Wire, and Deadwood. Yeah. they're three the, the three David shows. There's four if you count David Lynch, but David Simon did The Wire, David Chase did The Sopranos, David Milch did Deadwood. And it's not that I disliked it, I wouldn't say, except for the fifth season, which was miserable, which I'm sure we'll get to. It was just the least of the three shows to me. And... That was because I always felt that it was politically programmatic in a way that worked to the detriment of it as a drama.
1: Right. The Wire is, is polemic. It knows yes. it knows what it wants you to believe. Um, exactly right.
0: Exactly right.
1: And it approaches everything from that angle, which I do think interferes with its characterization. And I, I would say that I enjoy The Wire and that I think it deserves – most of its reputation, um, no matter what David Simon has become. Right. Um, right. But there is this sort of didactic element to it. It's always pursuing an agenda, which ultimately is liberal.
0: Yeah. And that, I always felt that, you know, even when I was a liberal, I always felt that it let you off the hook. If you believe the things that David Simon And I guess Ed Burns wanted you to believe or believe themselves about about race and crime and the drug war and policing in America, so that if if you agreed with them, you were effectively off the hook. Like it wasn't your fault that the Baltimore Police Department is completely corrupt and that people live in nightmarish poverty and uh, you know abject hopelessness. It wasn't your fault. You you think that the drug war is a mistake, don't you? Well, then, you're just fine. Really.
1: Whereas, I I think, to bring it back to the first show we discussed on the last episode, The Sopranos, there's a show that works actively to make you complicit in what Tony is doing. Right. You have sympathy for him, and you have a connection to him that builds over the course of the show, but in fact, he becomes worse and worse.
0: Yeah, and moreover, The Sopranos isn't about isn't half about the gangsters and half about the cops trying to take the gangsters down. Right. Agent Harris is a character and I love him. God bless him. But it it's just, it's different. It has no obvious politics within the story. There's some, there's some stuff about war on terror overreach. I would say like to the extent that like the FBI or whoever is, you know, they get transferred from the terrorism bureau to, organized crime or vice versa i forget how it works
2: mm-hmm.
0: um you know so there's like some sl- some some sly critique there but it just isn't about quote-unquote the issues
1: it's in not the way- a, it's not a show about what you should believe
0: yes exactly
1: and and really i feel that that aspect of the wire is kind of a shame because it has so many wonderful performances and a lot of Truly fantastic writing. One thing it doesn't have, I think, is uh, it doesn't go the extra mile. It doesn't push you. You know, there are extreme images and circumstances and there are deeply depressing things to look at and feel things about. But it's not a show that has dream sequences or transcendent imagery or like like moments of aporia where systems suddenly stop making sense. Yeah, that it's, was the... it's kind of fundamentally tame.
0: Yes, it was the least weird of the shows. Exactly. And, and and that held true even as more shows got tossed into the mix. It's less weird than Mad Men, it's less weird than Breaking Bad, which could be pretty weird. It's less weird than obviously The Leftovers or Twin Peaks or things like that. And so it it appealed to me the least. Now, I think it had moments of, I don't know if transcendence is the right word for it, but I think there are passages in season two and season four in particular that are really rapturous and usually rapturously negative.
1: Oh, oh you know what I just remembered is uh, the scene where they realize that all the empty houses are full of bodies.
0: That's great. That's great.
1: That's incredible.
0: And I think that the sheer chutzpah of doing something that it wasn't even, it couldn't be apparent what The Wire was doing until you're at season three. The whole idea that each season was going to be in part self-contained about some other aspect of the system in Baltimore Like, you know, obviously there's many, many stories about people getting to season two of The Wire and all of a sudden you're following these dock workers around who you've never met before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of your favorite characters have been kind of pushed to the edges and people like, what the fuck am I even watching? It took multiple episodes to get the quote unquote, get the gang back together and reassemble this sort of police squad that we followed half the time in season one. It takes forever for them even to show back up. That I thought was very, very cool.
1: Yeah, The and, Wire is a tremendously confident show. Um, yeah. Right out of the gate. Like, it has its toned down pat. Uh, it doesn't waver until season five, I think, where the whole thing kind of falls apart. And certainly these big pivots, like with the, the switch to the following the Sabatkas and the dock worker characters and that whole conflict. It's very fascinating. I've seldom seen another show do something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the material involving the school kids in season four is... Jesus Christ. Really, really, it's a difficult watch. And that, in a way, I think is maybe the one thing politically that doesn't really let you off the hook.
1: That's that's rough television, and...
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Obviously, you can't not credit it to the creators, but those child actors are the biggest gamble I have ever seen that paid off across the board.
0: Right, right. Because you have this incredible cast that you've assembled from, you know, half of whom by virtue of the fact that they're black are getting juicy roles like for the first time in their lives. Right. Or they're non-actors who were cast like Snoop, the character Snoop was Who's played incredible. by someone who'd never acted before. Right. And became like a, a huge cult hit in that way that supporting characters sometimes do. And before her, you had Michael K. Williams, As Omar, who is in a lot of ways the breakout character of the show, right, and he's like he's like the Batman of the show is really what he is, and that actually gets to something that pissed me off a little bit about the show, even while I was watching it the first time. David Simon, who I'm just gonna say is a buffoon. If you've ever seen his Twitter presence, it's really unfortunate, and it has put a lot of
1: it's all very neoliberal, very. Don't riot. Ask nicely.
0: He loves the cops. He's a yeah. big fan of the boys in blue. He'll be the well, first. So to much of
1: the show. This is maybe my single biggest issue with it. Is like, well, what if we just let the police do their jobs?
0: Exactly. Yeah. The, and the it's, problem it's with- that
1: he overlooks police brutality. There's a lot of good, co- good, like coverage of that and depiction of it. There's characters like Kima who is seen multiple times beating suspects for no reason at all. Right. That's a great performance too, and is like a a butch black lesbian. I think maybe the only one ever on television.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And she's she's a face like of like to use wrestling terminology. Pardon me, but she's like a white meat baby face. You know, in the in the in the moral continuum of the cops on this show. And I did appreciate that they showed even like the 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 more by the book characters or the less obviously like terrible cops still participating in these occasional beatdowns of something. Right,
1: they're all pieces of shit, which is in some ways makes David Simon's like deep and abiding love for the police very weird. Yes. Perhaps he has simply kind of smoothed out as a person over time. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I who cares?
0: By the 5th season, the show was making a lot of decisions that I think were hard for viewers to justify. And Simon's response is always like, "Well, that's the way it works." Like, I'm thinking, I'm I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but a major character dies in season five in a very unceremonious fashion, and you know his justification for it was like, "Well, that's that's what happens." Like, it you don't you don't get up, send off in a blaze of glory. However. In season four, a different major character dies who absolutely goes out in a blaze of glory because the two most badass Hitman dudes in the whole show have to team up to take him out. It's like Batman and the Punisher teaming up. It is that big a beat. It's like a superhero beat, the death of that character. And
1: I actually I, felt that was pushed a bit too far, that it was almost silly.
0: Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. And like, and I just remember thinking like you can't have it both ways, dude. I mean, maybe you can, but not when you get not when you get in such high dudgeon about people criticizing you for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just seems it just seems weird. And like the biggest problem with season 5 and I think the biggest well, there's two. In season 5, two cops who who have been shown to be rule breakers, yes, but extremely smart suddenly start breaking the rules in the stupidest possible way imaginable and if you've ever heard the, the the name McNulty uh referring to one of the cops in question like people will almost bring it up to you on if you bump into them on the street like oh and McNulty's arc in the fifth season what was that about <laughs> you know like it was like the show had to keep going so they had to reset everybody to like just to be stupid just to keep it going And then the other problem with season five is there's a storyline involving the Baltimore Sun, which is the real newspaper for which the real David Simon worked. And it's pure axe grinding against specific editors that he did not get along with. It is terrible.
1: Yes, Um, it's awful. It's some of the most transparently one-dimensional, just shitty, grudge-pursuing television I've ever seen. It's amazing that it was on a major network. I hate it
0: and when you think about how much uh dimensionality and humanity simon afforded to mass murderers throughout the course of the series like Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell like these people have a lot of dead bodies on them yeah and even someone like like Marlo who is the the kind of like the up and coming crime boss in the the last few seasons who's just a terrifying figure he's like a human shark the way the actor jamie hector plays him and yeah, he's got this piercing...
1: performance
0: yeah he's got these piercing eyes it's just it, it is it's an amazing performance that guy i think gets more respect from the show than people who the problem with them is that they were mean to david simon or they had or they're like they're lousy newspaper editors it's like they're not killing people by the dozens and stuffing their bodies in abandoned row houses. Like
1: and it's, it's pretty clear that David Simon, for all that he may have some kind of understanding of the damage that the press can and does perpetuate all the time against disadvantaged people, is not pursuing that. <laughs> you know, like I said, he's completely petty.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's another major aspect of the wire that I think holds it back from greatness for me, and that is the women.
0: I was gonna get there.
1: That was every, next on the list. Every wife on this show exists solely to tell her husband, no, don't do that cool dangerous thing.
0: Yep. And even even Kima, who is herself a wife of a wife, she's a wife girl, she is the person who engenders that feeling in her wife. So you kind of, you get the concerned wife from both sides.
1: Like, yeah, that, that was it.
0: That's all, he, That's all. like, his big idea for, like, what do I do with this this female character who's, like, a main character who's, who's not the wife at home? What if I give her a wife at home? Like, it's just, like, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, I guess.
1: It's really too bad because I think that Kima's, like, failure as a parent is a very interesting arc. Mm-hmm. And, unfortunately, it's buried under the other participant in that relationship not being a real person.
0: (laughs) Right, right. You know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this podcast, because I was like, am I being fair to The Wire and saying that it's, of all the canonical dramas, the worst with women? And I think the answer is no. Even I'm not even going to say even a show like Breaking Bad, because Skylar and Marie are terrific characters, who I always loved and I always hated – the you know the quote unquote bad fan phenomenon of people who wanted Walt to like ditch Skyler and make her shut up or whatever and no that was that was a great character and Anna Gunn gave a, a terrific performance and that is like maybe the most macho show of any of the ones we've really considered yeah uh, I mean, here. yeah and it still like has room for like a really big hearted and nuanced performance and and character who you're supposed to feel for, but also it's not just, is not just like, um, like a little lost lamb who needs a shepherd. Like she has her own issues and gets involved in Walt's business in a way that taints her. And, you know, as, as is the case so often with breaking bad at its best, it doesn't let anyone off the hook for that until the end. Sadly. Yeah. There's just really not a lot going on for women characters on the wire. It's a bit of a drag. To say the least.
1: Yeah. It's just so shocking to see something that for most of its run is so incredibly thoughtful and meticulous. Completely phone it in like a full 10% of the time.
0: Yeah. I just, I don't know. I'm tripping over myself. I, there's a lot I like about the wire, but I think it is the show. It's so funny because a few years ago, maybe not a few, I don't know how many years ago, 10 years ago, let's say, the consensus was that The Wire was the best show ever made. That was the consensus.
1: Yeah, I remember like, that. I think that it was, was like seven, eight years ago, tops.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it was it, it was not The Sopranos. It was not Twin Peaks. It was The Wire, hands down. And I think it's because of a lot of the things we talked about. Like, I think at a certain level, people don't mind that there's no women characters. I think at a, a certain point, people are happy to be told that their politics make them a good person. And it was so easy to have good politics by the the lights of the wire that I think it appealed to people. And then the other thing I think is that unlike – well, here's my grand unified theory of, of prestige TV, if if you don't mind indulging me for a second. Of course. Okay. I've, I've said for a long time that a lot of the big dramas are really all addressing the same question. What makes people choose to do – the wrong thing when they're afforded a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing. For the Sopranos, it's personal, and the Sopranos has a very dim view of the possibility of personal change. People do the bad thing because it's gratifying, because it's easier, because doing the right thing is hard work and forces you to confront your own failings. So people just will will coast on that indefinitely. For Deadwood, I think Deadwood is really, and maybe that's the show we'll talk about next, I don't know. Deadwood, I think, is really about people choosing to do the right thing despite the obstacles and the cost that that has. And how difficult that is, and and are you willing to pay that price? And with The Wire, the reason in the main that people do the wrong thing, it's institutional. It's systemic. There are institutional obstacles to people doing the right thing, to police being good, to society working the way it should. And I always found this, it was funny, like among writers that I knew, or even just people that I knew, the wire was very big in people who lived in DC or worked in DC. And I think that's because that's how they see the world. Like they, There's a system in place it's not working optimally but if you tune up the system if you tweak the system if you fix the system then that will solve the problems and right. the the system itself is not considered one of the problems <laughs> you know i just always felt like it was the least interesting approach to that particular question certainly of the of the big the hbo's big 3
1: it's funny because the germ of it is vital and fascinating i mean people do a bunch of things for systemic reasons yeah, but the wires' execution of that idea it just continues in the same vein indefinitely, and it in the end it doesn't really have much to say. It's like, well, if the police didn't prosecute nonviolent drug crime in this like silly utopian way, then they'd actually be good or something.
2: Mm.
0: It's too bad, man. It's too it bad. Is.
1: It is. <laughs> I, a know, of- I, don't, I don't think it's a failure as a show, but it's weak in a lot of ways that the other great shows are not.
0: And I think time will tell on it because even just in the last year, there has been such a shift around attitudes about policing and no longer can you get away with this idea of like, well, there's bad apples. Right. No longer really can you get away with the idea that the problem is red tape or bureaucracy or cops who are lazy. And, and right. that's why they're not do quote unquote doing their jobs.
1: Like, right. The, our problem, under- the problem is that police exist and have authority. Right. Police
0: um, are doing their jobs. That's the problem. The problem is what their job is. Right. Uh, you know, and I think as time passes it will, it's, it's like the Obama administration of television, right? Like, oh
1: God, that's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> and I, I think it's already happening. I mean, you don't see the same level of enthusiasm or even mention of the Wire in discussions of of like the greatest television ever anymore.
0: Yeah, last time I saw it mentioned on Twitter, it was one of the guys from Chapo Trap House, like just beating the shit out of it, and yeah, people in his mentions that's... being like, "No, delete this," and him being like, "It's just not as good a show as The Sopranos." I'm sorry, he's not wrong.
1: No, he's not.
0: I don't know. I don't know what would change to sort of rehab the show's image in that regard if i think if david simon were a more if he had more humility I, I think he could roll with the punches somewhat but he doesn't and he's so vocal it's not like it's not like david chase who has kept his silences or david lynch who is so inscrutable in so many ways like david simon will tell you exactly what he wants you to think about literally everything yeah. and i think it'll be hard for the show to escape that
1: I think maybe the nail is already in the coffin. Yeah. Culture has changed too much. The Overton window on policing has shifted too far. The show now looks like unusually thoughtful copaganda. Mm. Yeah,
0: that's that's about the best way to put it, I think.
1: And, you know, just, just as there are many, many beautiful things that have copaganda in them. I mean, you know, even Twin Peaks, to an extent, is in this world where the FBI is mostly kind of virtuous and principled.
0: It's, you know, I'm, I'm torn on Twin Peaks because you know, are obviously are there good FBI agents and cops in Twin Peaks? Yes, there's quite a few. And in in Twin Peaks season three, like is the fact that Bobby Briggs is now part of the Twin Peaks sheriff department. Is that meant to be like a big moral redemption arc for that character? Yes, it is. But at the same time, Coop is so outlandish as a person You know, like, his insistence on uh, on incorporating magic into his police work. (laughs) That, like, it's a little hard to take it quite so literally. And then certainly by the end of season three, they really call into question, not to sound trite, but, like, can this crime be solved? Right. You know, can this be set
1: right? Can can you even solve a crime?
0: Right. Can you solve a crime?
1: And the answer is definitively no. Yep. And again... It's just a slipperier,
0: weirder thing. Yeah that
1: and, and that's the reason I'm inclined to be much more generous to it.
0: Right. Right. Same here.
1: Yeah, I guess a more straightforward example of copaganda and something that I otherwise mostly like would be Hank and Breaking Bad.
0: Yeah, it's funny because he like he's kind of a, a he's like a jock. Right. So that's how he always read to me. So like you're supposed to find him kind of ridiculous, but in the end he has this like reservoir of dignity that kind of comes out of nowhere so again
1: they do they do a fairly good job fleshing him out i mean he starts to have panic attacks and he gets forced through this deeply humiliating process where he's basically trapped in his own body
2: yeah
0: that's true you're right there is like a refinement process there right but um you know i'm just remembering like what a like
1: he's not gallant from the the goofus and gallant comics but right he definitely by the end the sympathies have shifted from the whites to the Schraders. Mm-hmm. They are now the sympathetic point of view characters.
0: Yeah, that's 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 definitely true. But it's so personal, like the breaking bad is not about the drug war. No. The way that the wire no. is.
1: Breaking bad is a, a story about you know what happens when you empower a shitty little entitled guy. <laughs>
0: right, right. It's, it, the scope of it is different and so the, the 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 way that the cop characters come across is different right i mean so i love st-
1: still you know it's putting out into the public consciousness this repeated idea of the cop as a kind of reincarnation of the noble warrior figure from you know countless eons of human storytelling mm-hmm. and again i don't i don't think that it wrecks the show i don't think that it's like an irredeemable creative choice, but I do think that vesting moral authority in characters who are police officers, FBI agents, is a dramatic choice that carries social consequences.
0: For sure, it reminds me actually of another show that I think we underdiscussed in our first episode, which is Deadwood.
2: Fucking pagan! Tell your gods they're ready for blood.
0: Which is about a sheriff a person who actually existed as a matter of fact. And the first thing you see this man do really at all, but certainly under the auspices of his job as a law enforcement officer is personally, physically hang a person so that that person can't get lynched. Right. He does it himself. Uh Uh-huh. And like, that's the first scene of the show. And it's not gentle. No, it's not at all. And, that's bracing, because so much of Deadwood, which which is a show that we touched on in, in our first episode talking about television, but really didn't go into in detail. I think it's about, like I said, people choosing to do the right thing and the consequences that that has in their lives. And also like just the fact that they have to constantly be evaluating, well, what is the right thing to do here? It's almost always not the thing that makes you happy. So even though it is about a sheriff, at least in part... His his virtues not rewarded in a way that makes you think like oh well this is this is the show's like this is how how the show's moral universe is constructed like if the cop does the right thing then all is right with the world like
1: right absolutely Uh, if the cop does the right thing then he will continue to experience a great deal of personal unhappiness and violence will multiply around him regardless yes yes (laughs) you know and in the end some incredibly rich asshole can come in and just step over him. So what does it matter?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's your, what is your take on Deadwood? Do you have a Deadwood take?
1: I love Deadwood. The last time that I watched it last year, I did for the first time, get this vibe that there, there might be some like sentimentality in it in a way that I'm not super into.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's a very sentimental Um, show. I think.
1: Right. And I, I think it, gets very, 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 in a small way, high on its own supply. And I think it, it stays good while doing it. But there there comes a point where it's very difficult to reconcile who Al Swearengin is at the beginning and who he is at the end.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is it, uh, is it Al Engine's face turn that you're thinking of here?
1: Yeah, I, I do find it kind of difficult to swallow. Hmm and i I think that it's well set up enough that it comes off, and I don't think that it ruins one of the all time great television performances, yeah, I mean he's him, amazing, man. and he's also a very rare example of uh an adult male rape victim, his monologue about that while well, he's receiving a blowjob from a prostitute, and he's talking about having been prostituted out as a child and He's, he's just like, so inches from putting the pieces together. And, and when he does, it's a very small moment. You know, he's, he's talking about how much he hates it, hated it when people would pull on his hair to get his head where they wanted it. And then he looks down at the, the woman between his legs and he says, I guess I do that to you, man. I I mean, it's, it's incredible television. A lot of people got kind of up on a high horse Because of all the sex and the talking during sex and whether it was showy or stagey or whatever. I think it's almost always very personal and meaningful. You know, I just incredibly hot afterglow scenes with Alma and Seth. Mm -hmm. Where she's like lying half naked on the bed with her armpit hair out. That's great stuff.
0: I'm just so glad I never became one of these people who's like, you know what the problem with this show is, is there's too much sex. Oh, Christ. I'm so glad I never was like, I've never used the word sex position. Ugh. Like, in, like with a straight face. Nor, nor shall I.
1: No, it's, it's preposterous. I think the idea that there should be less sex on television is not even, it's not defensible.
0: No, no. Don't even dignify it with a response. Deadwood is a weird show. Going back to weirdness as a, as a rubric for quality, because of the language, because yes. of the the writing,
1: because um, it's almost all compound complex sentences that are delivered in frequently like in soliloquy. Yeah, you know it's it's very consciously Shakespearean. It has a lot of the stage in its makeup. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially once they introduce uh, Jack Langrish, the actual theater company owner in the third season, who's constantly strutting around and trying to sort of direct the scenes within the show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad that they really couldn't follow up on that because it got canceled after the third season.
1: It was a real pity, and and as I understand it, the canceling was sort of a Farago where one person heard a rumor and then called someone else and it just spun out of control.
0: Yeah. It, like they it just couldn't come to terms. And now, nowadays that would never happen. Like that is such a, like that I'm so glad that we, we got to that because like deadwood ended abruptly. There was a movie afterwards that they made many years later. Um, not unlike season three of twin peaks coming back, but like deadwood ended because of a financial dispute between and a communication breakdown between David Milch who created the show and, and wrote it almost single-handedly really. And not single-handedly, I don't want to say that, but like he rewrote some, like if you know anything about David Milch and his absolutely insane way of working, he would show up and rewrite things on the fly the day of, and people right. would be, you know, and, and just it, in many ways intolerable, but it's just so funny when you actually hear him speak and he speaks the way he writes. <laughs> yeah. You're like, at that point you're like, oh I got to let this guy slide. I mean, if that's how you, if that's how you speak, Like, yeah, I'd be wanting to rewrite everything myself. Like, of course. Where was I going with that?
1: You were talking about the weirdness of the show.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's because of the language. And it's because, like, it it allows for sort of flights of really spectacular emotion that are encapsulated in these sort of, like, little, yeah, like, soliloquies or even even just one-liners. Like, everyday dicks figuring out all over again how to fucking live which is said by Calamity Jane, like who's a Western actual real life, Western legend. And in the show is, is, is an inveterate alcoholic, um, right, sort
1: of a broken down, horrifically right. traumatized woman.
0: Right. But even like, you know, one thing that I always think of, and I, I looked it up so I can recite it is, uh, Francis Wolcott, who's a oh. scout for George Hurst, Who's like the Robert Baron who comes into town in season three, who happens to be a serial killer. And, uh, some I forget the exact circumstances someone he hears that someone said she's past surprise
1: yeah it's uh it's the prostitute that he had specially shipped to the town so that he could have this little affair with her that he planned to consummate by killing her
0: right and he says past hope past kindness or consideration past justice past satisfaction past warmth or cold or comfort past love but past surprise, what an endlessly unfolding tedium life would then become. No, Doris, we must not let you be past surprise. And I remember just like sitting back from my desk and just being like,
1: Whoo It's tremendous writing.
0: Takes your breath away.
1: And this, this, of course, is borrowed from reality, but it's like the reading aloud of... Wild Bill Hickok's letter to his wife, mm-hmm. which is is so unexpectedly poetic and begins in this kind of mocking way as totally unsympathetic characters look over it. And it it becomes this astonishing emotional moment. The show has a real knack for things like that. And yes, I mean, so much of that show is about taking people who don't know how to talk to each other and have like wildly different moral codes and understandings of the world and mashing them together and making them have a conversation. Yeah, everything from Seth's total inability to tolerate Al because he knows that he's like a cheat and a murderer to Al's conversations with the local Chinese bigwig Wu, and how they only understand a few words of each other's languages, but they manage to communicate extremely complicated concepts to each other.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's so much about like. You know, there's that phrase, a lie agreed upon. Um, and like, so much of the show is about how this community comes together by people talking to each other. There's all these meeting scenes where they have to break open the fucking canned peaches or whatever. But like, it's a, it's a show about like, you know, the construction of this town as a, as a viable entity through the way people talk to each other about the town. I don't know if that, if I'm making sense, but like,
1: I understand what you mean it's about like how a society forms. Right. And how it forms is that a bunch of people get into the same location and then they start exchanging ideas until the dominant ideas gel into something solid.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's just a lot of I don't know, that's just like a really that's really fucking territory.
1: It's extremely rich. Yeah. And it's helped by the fact that the cast is A tremendous and B again to a lesser degree than the sopranos but still to a noticeable degree much of the cast looks very normal
0: mhm i mean they look old timey but yeah. but normal people from from the olden times um
1: right just you know just like people whose whose bodies are equivalent to people you know yeah there's a fair amount of fat characters there are disabled characters there are some really fantastic black characters on that show I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who does as much with as little as the actor who plays Hoss Dettler. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a tiny role, but it's it's short. He's not on the show for very long. Right. And just the self-loathing and the rage and the learned helplessness of him is so incredibly sad.
0: I just remember the way, like you know, when Steve the drunk, who he's having this dispute with about the ownership of a stable, where he had to flee town to avoid getting lynched, and uh, he comes back and someone else has taken it over. Steve lets out with this white hot torrent of racism, as bad as anything you'll ever hear on television.
1: Yeah,
0: I, we shall not see what it's like again. I don't think, and just the way Hostetler says, "You motherfucker." And he's and it's like, did you just motherfuck me? And he just says, he says it again, you motherfucker,
2: motherfucker,
0: yeah. And it's, like, it means something to him. It means something to him when he says it. Like he, it's not just an expletive. Like he is saying something with it. Right. It's, um. You should see. I'm gesticulating. I'm talking with my hands here. Like he's <laughs> really saying it. it.
1: He's talking um, as much to himself as to Steve. And yeah, you know, Steve is another astonishing performance. Because he's so vitriolically racist, and he's kind of a pathetic person, and th- there's just this sense of deflatedness around him. Like he's only a real human being when he's screaming at a black man. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I've just, I've never seen a a portrayal of racism like that on TV, where it's like he's he's broken, and even when he's at his most decent. It's just poisoned. Yeah. And that's just that I think brings me to what I love best about Deadwood, which is that it presents this vast array of sick and broken people, people who are not afforded any kind of anachronistic discussion about their mental illnesses, or, you know, people who don't have background episodes to explain why they are the way they are. Oh, thank Christ. And and it's beautiful. You get right up close and personal with these people who have extremely severe mental problems, you know, like Cy Tolliver and his really, really intense, ugly self-harm when he's sick in bed and Jane's breaking down, blubbering in terror the first time that she comes face to face with Al. And these are moments that tell whole stories about these people's lives that it would be worse than a waste to turn into, like, words and reflections with resolution. Because this, this is how they live. It's how they exist.
0: Yeah. You're right about the the lack of anachronistic sort of hand-holding about mental illness.
1: Right. They're just, like, busted. You know? Joni Stubbs is never not going to be seesawing in and out of suicidal depression.
0: Yeah. 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 I don't know. I hadn't thought of that before, but it just makes you grateful for a show that like doesn't think you're stupid. Or, right. or doesn't or doesn't see its its mission to be like a guidance counselor.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Deadwood is so either confident or indifferent about, you know, whether or not you will get what it's saying that it just goes right ahead. Yep. And that's the only way that you can make great art you cannot think about what the dumbest people in the world need in order to get it.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Um, And it's why, it's why art like that will always be so much more meaningful to me than the sort of God, the thing that jumps immediately to mind is BoJack Horseman, where they just discuss mental illness in the most played out introductory session with your therapist way over and over and over at length.
0: I think I said something once to the effect that like the stuff about mental illness in narrative fiction that has moved me or the stuff about human nature that has moved me is never something that sounds like something I've said to my therapist or my therapist has said to me. Never. It has never been that. That's what therapy is for. It's not what art is for. I I feel very strongly about that.
1: I will Uh, also, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that's, an idea that was extremely influential to me when I first became acquainted here your, with your work. Hey, right on. And it's it's one that I think is still very important to me.
0: I will also add, as an aside, that Deadwood has the single best fight scene I have ever seen.
1: Oh my god! yeah. between
0: Dan Doherty and Captain Turner. And it's I've, the best I,
1: fight scene, and it's not close.
0: Yeah, I've told this story several times. That the first time I watched it, after it was over, I had the splitting headache and I couldn't figure out why until I realized that I had held my breath for the duration. I had literally not breathed for the duration of the fight or close and to I, it.
1: I think that's one of the the best arguments for my pet theory that nothing with normatively handsome or beautiful actors is ever going to cut as deep as something that will go the extra mile of casting people who look like people. Yeah, Because watching these two, like, fat middle-aged men slam into each other and then like roll in the mud and gruesomely injure each other. Mm-hmm. It's like fucking watching your dad kill your uncle.
0: Yes. It has, it's the way you describe it reminds me of like a lot of the appeal of wrestling from the, the quote unquote territory days when things were not national and they were local, you know, not quite local, but like, Regional promotions that were, you know, there was in Memphis and there was in Texas and there, and a lot of those guys, they they looked, you know, the way it was. I think the writer David Shoemaker put it was like they looked like the guy on your block who would say to little kids, "Hey, cut that shit out," <laughs> you know. <laughs> they had that look to them, you know. They were like they were yeah they were beefy middle aged guys who they weren't body guys like Hulk Hogan. And they weren't nowadays like the the sort of um, cruiserweight type people that they have. They were like Dusty Roads. They were Arn Anderson. They were like they just looked like dudes who could probably put out your lights in a parking lot, you know.
2: Right. They
0: were just rough customers, and that makes such a difference to that fight scene from Deadwood that they're not, you know. It, one of them's not Keanu Reeves, you know. Like they're just two dudes. It makes it so much more. You just feel like they're at risk in a way that you don't feel that way when it's someone who's like Hollywood Beautiful doing it, you know?
1: Right. And I think that's both because work with people who come out of like a, you know, press somewhere in identical shape is just sort of less daring. So you're less likely to see something that really appalls you. And two, you know, because as, as we've been saying, there's a level of immediacy to seeing this happen to someone like people you know. Yeah. Which actually is one of the other great just dudes fight scenes happens on The Sopranos.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Fight. Yeah. And I, I do think that the Deadwood fight is a cut above. But I always loved that the violence on The Sopranos, and I'm, I'm sorry, I have to segue back into talking about it for just a second, was always craven and all about immediately getting the upper hand through like trickery. And it's all about laziness and inability to uh, resolve conflict.
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: It's just fantastic.
0: It's the coward's way out in a real in a in a in a real way, and not like in a kind of like fighting is the coward's way out. Like, no,
1: it really is. <laughs> right. Like, we're going to show you a coward who is a loathsome human being, and they're going to solve their problems by murdering teenagers because they don't know how to have a feeling. Yeah. The Sopranos is a pretty good show. It's a it's a pretty good show. It's a pretty good show, buddy. Now would you like
0: here to transition to Mad Men?
1: I was actually just going to say that Mad Men is a show with almost no violence in such a studious, interesting way. Yeah. I think it's a natural next show to talk about.
0: And it's, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the first things I ever consciously thought about Mad Men is that at that point in my life, you know, it was still very early on in the, the, the big new golden age wave of TV and all of my favorite shows at that point involved people who murdered other people for a living. Right. You know, there was- the Sopranos and Deadwood and The Wire and I think I think I got to Breaking Bad first. I'm not sure, but there's also Battlestar Galactica and Lost and like all shows built around violence. And I was worried that I was going to be bored. Like I was going to uh, like I was like, have I just gotten to the point? Because this is also I'm coming off several years of working basically in the superhero sphere of the comics industry. When I worked at Wizard Magazine, which was mostly about superhero comics, certainly a lot of the stuff that I did for the magazine wasn't, but like, that was the sphere I was coming from. And so much of all the narrative fiction I was taking in was based on violence in some way or another. And I was like, am I going to be bored by Mad Men? Listener, I was not bored by Mad Men.
1: (laughs) Mad Men is such a great, if you'll forgive the ironic metaphor, bullet to the head to the idea that you need to be violent to be interesting.
0: For sure. Um, Not
1: that I don't personally find violence very interesting. I do. I watch a lot of violent television and film. I read a lot of violent literature. Um, I think it's a very important thing to try to understand as a human being. And it's also just really compelling because it invariably involves some kind of strong emotion. Um, Yeah. But the absence of violence from Mad Men. There's a a weird comparison here that I want to make. Mad Men is like a really, really good D&D campaign where everyone is very committed and willing to talk about everything with random NPCs they just met. Mm-hmm. So nothing devolves into like, well, we kill the blacksmith and burn down his forge and loot it. Right. It's all about worlds where you have to keep coexisting with people who you might hate.
0: Yes, yes. Oh my God. Yes, you should see me. I'm reeling back in my chair. I'm like,
1: yes,
2: yes.
0: That's the thing about Mad Men that so many shows that imitated it missed, and that people who thought about it missed is that you're doing a Mad Men is a workplace drama. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to get along with the people you work with. Not right. all of them, and not all the time, but some of them. And at all times, like you, 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 there is no workplace that does, because that was the thing. Mad Men is about people also who are good at their jobs. Like they were a good advertising agency and like, you cannot, like I guarantee you, anyone listening to this, you personally have never been in a work situation where you hated literally everybody who you worked with and did a good job. I guarantee it. It's impossible. And like, so when, when shows like, halt and catch fire which rebounded really hard and you know if we talk about halt again we'll get to that like it's first season they were always fighting about everything and I just thought like I, just, I remember complaining about it at great length like this ginned up conflict all the time like
1: right and it was it was always so extreme and it was always right off the handle there was no organic yeah. buildup; everything just went immediately to 11
0: yeah and like in, in Mad Men it's not just that over time characters that start as like Fierce personal enemies become close friends. Although that does happen, and I think it's fucking beautiful to to watch that, watch these people's relationships evolve because they're so well delineated. It, it's just that, like, you kind of have to get along to do a
1: good job, or else you're not going to do a good job. And like, they, I've seen, I've seen you talk about this, but this was a really monumental moment for me to see on television, which is when Dawn fires Pete. Very early on in the show. It's the first season. And then Roger takes him upstairs to Bert, the senior partner at the company, who says, well, we can't fire him. His you know, parents are too well-connected socially and we'll lose jobs and we'll be social pariahs. So they go back down. And instead of making Don eat crow, Roger says that Don is the reason that Pete gets to keep his job and that yeah. he, he fought for him to get a second chance. And it's brilliant. It's like, oh my God, he knows exactly how to smooth over this kind of stupid conflict that could poison a whole workplace. It's so interesting the way that these characters are simultaneously so immature and so socially skilled.
0: Man, I remember I remember that now that you mention it, because I remember thinking like, this show is so much smarter than me. This is so great. <laughs> yeah. I never would I never would have thought of that solution to that particular problem in a million years and then like it ha- it unfolds in front of me and i'm like god damn this is
1: great right or like the um the resolution for season 3 where they conspire to all get themselves fired so that they can do an end run around their contract it's brilliant television
2: yep yeah a
1: heist uh,
0: movie where they steal themselves
1: yep and and <laughs> it's oh man what a tremendous show i there's a I think another really key moment in Mad Men is when Don is afraid that his secret identity is going to be outed by his half brother coming to find him. And he goes to see him and he brings a bag with a brick of money and a gun. And of course, when I saw it, I was like, Oh, he's going to shoot the guy. And then there's going to be a whole thing. And no, he pays him off. And like, you know, leaves himself in a financial pinch. And for the the whole rest of the show, there's never a moment where you are allowed to like revel in the physical supremacy or dominance of Donald Draper.
0: Yeah. They're constantly undermining that. I mean, like, you know, he's, he's gorgeous. Right. And that's, that's a huge part of his character, but like, you're always seeing him like get sick or get drunk or throw up. They don't want to convey the idea that the fact that these people are like paragons of like the beauty standards of their time, like, make them into superhuman people at all
1: right i don't think that Don ever wins a fight and he's in several yeah in fact he gets beaten up by one of the most pitiful and unlikable characters on the show duck phillips
0: duck what a great villain oh my god
1: incredible yep incredible from his introduction right to his his final appearance as like a you know cackling little spirit of christmas leprechaun.
0: (laughs) That was there there's no show, including Game of Thrones, I think, that was as ruthless with its cast as Mad Men. Which maybe as you learn a little bit about what Matt Weiner is like behind the scenes, like it says something about the creator of the show, Matt Weiner, perhaps. But like, you you didn't even have the excuse of getting killed off on this show. Like he'd just be like, oh, I'm done with this character. We've we've I think we've reached the end with this character, and then they'd be gone from the show. Maybe they'd pop up again. That happened a few times. Duck Kinsey, is one example. Bitch. Paul Kinsey is one example. Like and it was fun when that happened, but like that guy was a fucking axe man when it came to the cast. The heist episode where they break away and form their own company, that's essentially like saying goodbye to like a third of the cast. Yep. Some of whom returned, most of whom didn't. It's cold, man. It's cold.
1: It's very cold.
0: Yep. <laughs> and I, I sound like I'm celebrating it. And I guess I kind of, <laughs>
1: kind of am. I mean, it makes for great television.
0: Yes, it does. It really does. Nothing
1: hangs on past its its utility.
0: Yep. And I think, I also want to say, I'm trying to think of all my man Men thoughts They're coming in a big jumble, but it is, maybe, I think it might be the show that is most influenced by Twin Peaks.
1: I was actually, I was just thinking the same thing. Um, It has the most bizarre outbursts of you know violence and tragedy and also it has a lot of actors from Twin Peaks who and we've talked about this before just in conversation but almost everyone who has been involved with Twin Peaks carries the fucking aura with them like radiation
0: yes yep
1: because when you see fucking Ray Wise show up on Mad Men it's terrifying
0: right because he's Ray Wise from Twin Peaks you know who he is Like he can't be normal he can't be normal
1: and and he's he's not. It makes scenes like the one where he discusses his retirement and how he's learning to cook and he made a pop tart. It oh. goes from like silly to, to just bewildering and yes. weird and off-putting.
0: And that like there were a lot of lynch actors. Like the other one I'm thinking of is um Patrick Fischler, who Yeah,
1: Mad in- also shows up.
0: Right. And like Fischler is known to lynch fans as the person who has the dream about the man behind the winkies in Mulholland Drive. And he shows up as uh, yeah.
1: Perhaps the greatest scare in film. Just
0: untouchable. David Lynch is so good when it comes to horror that's just like on, on film at least, it's it's him and the shining. Yeah. I think. I like the exorcist a lot too. You know, there probably is another alternative that you might put forward Blair Witch or the Ringu or whatever. But anyway, um so frightening. And like he's in this incredibly frightening scene in Mulholland drive and he shows up as this insult comic. Who's a client of Don's agency with whose wife Don is having an affair. And he is the first person to just come out and say to Don, you're scum and you know it. I think he, I think that's the line as a matter of fact, yeah. or you're garbage and you know it. And like it's invested with this energy that comes mm-hmm. straight from the power of what happened to him in Mulholland drive. Like it's like seeing a dead man come out of the tomb and say this to Don Draper and have this, like like this invasion of the body snatchers, 1977, like pointing and like opening his mouth and this horrible accusation comes out, you know, like, it's just, oh, it gives you chills. And, and Mad Men did a lot with dream sequences and with drug sequences and fever dreams fantasies like things that actually were surreal like what that word means not just weird (laughs) or goofy or zany or like whoa like it's not fucking riverdale no it's like genuinely invested in what the imagery and dreams and in drug trips actually mean and whether you can derive meaning from that for your life and like the Sopranos did that, too, and it's not a, you know, I think Matt Weiner co-wrote The Test Dream, did he not? Yes, he did. Which is the best dream sequence ever yeah. um, from The Sopranos, so, uh, you know, that doesn't surprise me. And and I think it's also Lynchian, again, because as we talked about when we talked about Twin Peaks, like, you are dealing with a lot of people with this sort of matinee idol glamour to them. While that has its limitations, if that was the only thing on offer...
1: It's uh, not. It's David not. Lynch- Carefully surrounds them with the Jack Nances of the world, as I think I right. put it last time. Right, right. um People who look accessible, yeah, and um, that that is a- off-putting, like Patrick Fish- Fishler, who has this like very wide-set eyes and a bullet head. Uh, yeah,
0: he's got this sour look to him. He was, in, he wound up being in Twin Peaks, also in Twin Peaks season three after his time on Mad Men. Yep. And you know, like I, when I got involved in television criticism. I was mostly doing it for f- mostly doing it for free on my own time for my own blog. Um, I had written about Battlestar Galactica and Lost for Wizard when Wizard kind of pivoted from being about superhero comics to being about nerd culture, and that was actually a pretty forward-thinking thing to do. Madman was one of the first shows that I I wrote about, and at the time I was coming from comics criticism, and in comics criticism, like everything is deliberate, like everything you're talking about when you look at a page of comics. Certainly when you look at a page of like art comics or literary comics or stuff that's not made along the um the assembly line procedure of a superhero comic where there's one person who's writing and one person is pencilling, one person's inking and one person's coloring and one person's doing the lettering when when it's when it's really the work of like one or two human beings, everything's deliberate like the the the, the, the thickness of the line, the weight of the line, the character designs, the the lettering, the use of color or the or the lack of color. It's all the product of deliberate human action, and when I was writing about Mad Men, you know, I found myself writing a lot about like how John Hamm looks and how Christina Hendricks looks because you want to. I did anyway.
1: And Um, it's also because those things are integrated into the show and are vitally important to the characters and the plot.
0: Yes, the casting is this like that's what I was trying to say. Like the casting of that show. Is like a choice, like coloring or 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 line weight, like the way they look and the way they sound. That's a deliberate choice that was made in the production of this this television show. You don't have the like, you know, Matt Weiner doesn't have the control over it that like Chris Ware has over what goes on in a, in a, in, a, in a page of Acme Novelty Library, but like he still oversaw the construction of this cast and was like, does this person look right? Does this person? sound right so that to me becomes like i like i because i felt bad basically i felt bad that i was writing about like how good looking john ham was it's something about it felt off to me and then i was like well no this is like a a very important choice for this character because he's able to operate the way he does in the world and able to get away with the things that he does or or and in some cases he fails to get away with the things that he does because of how he looks like that's
1: Right. It's an and, active and,
0: component of the drama.
1: Right. And the show is very smart and subtle about letting you know this by putting Pete right next to him. Right. And Pete, you know, he looks kind of baby-faced and is nothing special in terms of what people wanted from the ideal man at the time. And he's, he's shrimpy and whiny, and he has no social skills. And he does mostly what Don does. But yes. people find him repellent instead of compelling.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly,
1: and it's it's all just a matter of like, well, how charming is this person, and how beautiful are they, and what do I feel when I look at their face? Because they're both shitty people.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and I, I and you know, and Pete
1: is aware of this.
0: Like that is, I think, one of the sources of the conflict between Pete and Don in the early seasons of Mad Men, like. Pete wants to be Don, but he know, he's not, and he can't. He finds this unfair on, on a cosmic level,
2: right? And
0: that comes up with Pete so often. Like he doesn't get what he feels, not even just what he wants, what he feels he deserves in life. He's constantly like, you know, he he is Don Draper played as farce. You know, his affairs always go tits up. He loses his hair. You know, his waistline expands. He's not considered the genius that Don is considered, because that's an important thing, too. Don is a considered a genius by everybody, including people who hate
1: him. Yes.
0: Like, Whereas
1: um, Pete is an unremarkable thinker.
0: Right, right. But yet, Pete is the most forward looking, forward-thinking person in the firm about, of all things, race. Like, Pete is the person who's like, who comes up with this ad campaign for this television that they have as a client briefly to market it towards black people. And the rest of the agency is like, what are you fucking nuts? And he's like, they need televisions. Like their money spends,
1: like what is wrong with you? Right. And then, he's, he's totally baffled when the client just like is repulsed right. by the idea. And then
0: of all things, when Martin Luther King is assassinated, I forget exactly how he puts it but you know one of his coworkers is talking about like how this is going to play havoc with like television ratings or some shit you know and he's I like no what
1: he says is it's a shameful shameful, shameful day.
0: day yep and like he he feels it
1: yeah it's in a way that not to make himself look good
0: right and i think if you sat and interviewed him i don't think he'd be able to come up with um a reason why it's shameful that that's articulate or that would pass muster as an explanation of why this was a horrible crime.
1: Right. I mean, he's often correct about what is going on in some racially tinged situation, but at no point does it alleviate the fact that he is both a beneficiary and proponent of like the white supremacist world that he moves in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's not someone who has like nuanced views on race. He just gets something about it that the people around him either don't care about or don't understand.
0: Right. I don't, I just think that was such a fascinating choice to make. And, and it's that's the kind of choice that Mad Men would make over and over. Yeah. Um, In
1: the same way that uh, Don, who is beautiful and charismatic, is indifferent towards race. Yeah. And, you know, contemptuous of homosexuality and Joan is shown to be patronizing and disconnected when she interacts with her black coworkers or Peggy, who is just like, you know, scared in that particular white woman way. It's a brilliant show. It's, it's so smart about whiteness and the, the emptiness of white culture.
0: Yeah. And, um, I also want to single it out because I think it may have not counting Twin Peaks season three, um, the single strongest season of anything that I've ever seen season five, you have this run of five back to back to back to back to back masterpiece episodes. I think mystery date signal 30 faraway places at the codfish ball and lady Lazarus. And it's not like the rest of the episodes are weak either. Like,
1: No, they're all great.
0: Yeah, but that
1: that run in five is untouchable. Those are all astonishing, best ever episodes of television.
0: And it just, God, what a fucking thrill it was to be reviewing the show at the time, and just every week getting knocked flat on my ass by it, you know. And it was when it was it was I want to say it was also Game of Thrones season three, right around then, at the same time. So like you have you're you're building up to a certain event there, and it's like. My goodness, that was, and I was doing them back to back. I was covering them back to back. That's my favorite work I've ever done. Just, you know, watching Game of Thrones from nine till 10, writing about Game of Thrones from 10 to 11, watching Mad Men from 11 to midnight and writing about Mad Men after that.
1: Yeah. I remember there was a period where we were, uh, we were both doing that. I think it was for season seven of Mad Men.
0: Oh, so good it felt you just yeah, felt like that,
1: you're, you felt like
0: you were being rewarded for doing the goddamn job like it was it, it was fun it was exciting it was thrilling thrilling television
1: yeah it was i mean even when you think about the first season of mad men which is very normal compared to the rest of mad men that final monologue where he talks about the carousel and he Creates in the space of a few words this entire world of love and beauty and belonging that is so powerful that it sends Harry Crane, who will become the most loathsome person on the show, scurrying out of the room in tears. And it's it's this incredible dream that the show then allows you to watch collapse in on itself in total silence. I, I am hard pressed to think of a single speech that it was that big a deal yeah. to everyone who watched television. Although I, I think personally that Betty's speech about how bad she wants to fuck Don when they're in bed together is equally good. She talks about like all of these facets of her domestic life and how the rest of her life feels like a fog. Until they're having sex because she wants him so badly all the time. So, this sad. show is so interesting about like the sexual unfulfillment of women.
0: That's a pretty dark through line, actually, now that I think about it through the whole yeah, show. It is. Yeah.
1: Betty is also an exceptional character who I didn't think ever really got her due.
0: No, people hated January Jones's performance so much, it was so stupid.
1: I mean, I, I can't fathom it. She looks like she does and acts like she does. And it's astonishing. Yeah. She's it's like someone peeled back the skin on Martha Stewart and found some like shrieking inarticulate half formed monster child. Yeah. She was never allowed to grow up. No, she, she was purpose. She was like a show horse. You know, she was purposefully forced to act in unnatural ways until she could not be a human being. And then she spends the rest of her life trying, trying with no real object in mind.
0: And it's like, no, she's not Edie Falco as Carmela Soprano, but it's the same as like Steve Buscemi was not James Gandolfini as, as Tony Soprano. Like they're, they're different. They're different.
1: They're, they're about different things. They are different performances. They're saying different things on every level from the casting down to the diction with which they speak.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: And she is firmly about the idealized perfect image of a woman at that time. And the pain that it concealed the, the like foot binding, like constriction of the personality of those women. And it it was wild. You know, there were people in my family who lived through that period and you could see echoes of her in them.
0: Man, that's a really good character.
1: It's also a great attack on the idea of motherhood as it typically exists in television like that. Which I think is something that it shares with The Sopranos, that there is no redemptive value to being a woman who has had children. Right there's nothing inherently virtuous or good about it. You are not yeah. automatically a force for good in the lives of those children. You can in fact inflict unbearable psychic damage on them. As yeah, it has I mean, no, no romanticism about parenthood. And no,
0: not at all. Not at all. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's sneaky in a way because uh, none of the parents in Mad Men in terms of the main characters are as bad as let's say, Livia Soprano, you know, Um, but you're seeing like what low grade Lydia Sopranos can do. Um, and it's not pretty.
1: Betty, I think comes closest. I mean, she hurts Sally, threatens her very frighteningly. I think she once threatens to cut off her fingers. Great stuff.
0: And it's like, you know, it's a cycle because like, she's never, one of the things I find the most upsetting in real life and in fiction is when, Children are, are forced to parent their parents. Ugh. That happened a lot in, in Mad Men. You know, I even remember when one of the many Bobby Drapers tells, um, I can't even say it. I'll, I'll cry.
1: Oh, is this the line where he says we have to get you a new daddy? Yep. Yeah. I was, I literally just teared up talking to my sibling about that the other day.
0: <sighs> I bawled. I just exploded in tears
1: there's an incredible tenderness to that moment. Yep. And I think it's even it's even better because it doesn't heal anything in Don. He doesn't go on to have like a meaningful relationship with his son.
0: No, not at all. Not at all.
1: If anything, I think perhaps it scares him away more.
0: I think that that, sh- that show had the power to make me cry. Uh, maybe more than any other show that I can think of, actually. Like I'm sitting and thinking about it now.
1: Also like, tremendously funny.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. Yes.
1: It's, it's the only thing that I think is as funny as the Sopranos.
0: Yeah. Madman was so fucking funny. Mad Madman is part of one of the reasons I got so intolerant of sitcoms. And it's just like, you know, right,
1: it's just fucking funnier when a real person says or does the thing right. for an understandable reason.
0: It's funnier to watch. Pete Campbell fall down the stairs (laughs) than it is to watch like Joey Tribbiani from friends fall down the stairs or whatever,
1: you know, like it's just because one, you know, is, is supposed to make you laugh. And the other, well, it might be intentionally funny is it's woven into the world in a way that the, uh, the latter is not.
0: Right. Cause you, you understand what the social consequences are Mm -hmm. for Pete falling down the stairs. There are some, you know, right. it's not just a random pratfall. Like it affects, you know, it, it feeds into the the uh, who Pete is and how people think of Pete. Right, and, that's like, a That's part of what makes it funny, is because he's he's trapped in this 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 Don Draper of Earth Two persona right. and body, right. and like he can never do anything cool. He can no. never do anything cool.
1: No, he's he's allergic to it. Peter's never moments like uh when we're just sitting with Don as he's looking at something in his office and it's a long, long scene, and then we see Peggy's face appear in the little <laughs> glass window at the top of the partition. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in on him and it's totally like unremarked upon. There's no like explosion, it's just hysterical. Yeah. And again, it's because she has this sort of mousy, nosy quality to her. Yep. Um,
0: Fucking Lane Price saying there was bubblegum in his pubis.
1: (laughs) 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 Oh, man. That that Jared Harris performance is astounding. Yep. Um, From start to finish, man. And the conclusion of that story is another thing that has frequently made me cry.
0: Especially when you hear the stories of how they, how they went about actually making that scene.
2: Oh and
0: you know, the I'm trying, I'm trying to dance around it without saying anything explicit. Cause I'm very weird about certain spoilers, but like um, you know, how all the, all the characters in that scene, the actors were experiencing it for the very first time as the characters themselves were right. obviously. So you're getting like, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a stunt to do that kind of thing, but it's an effective stunt. Oftentimes
1: yes, an alien and it has worked since.
0: Yep. Yep. Indeed.
1: Whew. Well, it may be something that is deployed by the Matthew Weiners of the world who are unconcerned with how people feel about them. Yeah. Yeah. But it gets results.
0: So where do we pivot to now? We've we've done the big three, I think, that we wanted to tackle this episode.
1: I think we should talk about anthology television. Okay, sure. You know, we were talking about David Lynch and his his fluency with the language of horror. To my mind, the scariest thing that has been on television in a long, long time was Channel Zero. What is this? Is that your TV? Turn it off. Turn it off. Mike, why are you scared to come home?
0: I absolutely agree with you.
1: The first episode of the second season of Channel Zero. So every season of Channel Zero is based on a different online creepypasta, loosely.
0: Right. Right.
1: But the first episode of Channel Zero, uh, the, sorry, the first episode of the second season, I think is the scariest episode of television I've ever seen. Mm. That moment where the main character is pressed up against the deformed homunculus of her dead father is so horrible. It's yeah. so unbearable. Yeah, because there's an it, like.
0: Listen, I remember even watching um, watching the first episode of the first season and by this point i believe i'd seen some pretty lackluster horror efforts across television i think probably by then i had reviewed the first season of castle rock for rolling stone which is a stephen king universe kind of adaptation it was really weak and i remember thinking very very consciously and very specifically that the first scene of the first episode of the first season of channel zero was scarier and had more scares than entire other shows that were nominally horror. Yes,
2: absolutely.
0: You track down that first episode of channel zero. I think it's on shutter and Amazon prime. You can probably get it through. And I know that that first that first opening scene from channel zero season one is on YouTube because I've watched it there recently. And, uh, it is so unnerving repeatedly and in different ways over and over and it's short and it's like, it just never ever gives you a chance to settle down.
1: No, you're There's never no... Allowed to get on your right foot. You started off unbalanced and it just keeps pushing you.
0: Yes. And that's the case. I think with the show across all four seasons, the fourth season is the most like um kingish insofar so far as you have like a couple of, who are basically okay, but they're having some problems and blah, blah, blah. But I, I think that part of the strength of channel zero is not creating a status quo that it then upends, you know, right. it usually goes in hard and deep, very fast. And the emotional baggage that the characters who are subjected to these different horrors or that they're processing, like that it's drawn out organically over the course of the, horror material from the season you know what i'm saying like i do did you see bird box no okay don't um but (laughs) i I didn't plan on it there's a really bad scene in the in in the opening of bird box where like it's it's sandra bullock is the main character and Sarah, sarah paulson plays her sister and they're just having this exposition heavy dialogue about like oh you're having a kid it's too bad your husband is not or whoever you know he didn't want anything to do with the child you sure you want to go ahead yes i'm sure blah 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 like they spell all of it out right. um in this really awful awful clunky exposition and like channel zero is just in this breakneck race to get you past that as quickly as possible like it
1: yeah it has it has no interest in in dawdling through it i think the other thing that channel zero has going for it is that its monster design is astonishing yes yes um you know they in the first season, they bring in I think his name is Olivier de Sagazan forget I'm butchering it I'm sure but he sounds a, right. He's a, a French like postmodern artist whose performance art includes covering himself in clay and then like mutilating the proxy skin of the clay. and he just does that on the show and it's the most horrific, upsetting shit you will ever see. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's because it's it's a practical effect. It's a real person expressing like his particular vision of what is frightening and difficult. You know, it's the same reason that the monster, the the entity, in alien, is so enduring and effective, which is that it was H. R. Geiger's vision. No one said the monster has to look like this and do this. He produced what he thought was frightening. When you find a great artist and let them execute their vision, I think invariably you get something that is so much more special than, you know, the 15th tall, attenuated pale figure that's just riffing on Slenderman. I mean, my God, the, the tooth child in season one, or then the, um, the monsters inspired by the prisoner of all things in season two. And in the third season, you get this sort of, lynchian flavor with the, the dwarves and the like staticky television effect face of the cannibal patriarch. And then in the fourth season, you have this sort of paper house aesthetic that's sort of intentionally childish and scribbly. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And they're drawing from all over the place and they're never repeating themselves
0: that was the thing i think that stunned me the most i was watching it with you know my partner and our dear friend Julian greffaire who's no slash when it comes to horror and like we would you know after almost every episode we would just sit and say like i cannot believe that it is still this scary right like it never stops being terrifying mm-hmm. and we're we're too we're salty dogs when it comes
1: to this stuff and you are too like right This is this is not our first rodeo. No, as his second rodeo said.
0: (laughs) I think it's so strong. I think I think Channel Zero is such a strong television show. I hate myself for not having gotten on board right away.
1: Oh, me Um, too. I don't necessarily. It was was the fact that it was on Sci-Fi, and I I kick myself every day for not jumping on it anyway. Yep. I should have known they had one more in them after Battlestar Galactica.
0: Sure, you know, I mean, I'm kicking myself that I didn't. I and Nick Antosca, who 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 made the show, who is a Hannibal alumnus, um, which I think says a lot. Like he meant, I interviewed him once, and he said we, I I wanted to get the Tooth Child into Hannibal season three, but we couldn't figure out a way to do it. (laughs) He went on, like I mentioned in the in our previous episode. To make the act.
2: Moi, lorsque j'ai connu Clyde autrefois, c'était un gal royal, honnête et droit. Il faut croire que c'est la société qui m'a définitivement abîmé. Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie Clyde.
0: Which is not based on a creepypasta. It was based on a true story of of Munchausen by proxy and and murder. That was like a very buzzed about Buzzfeed article by Michelle Dean, who wound up co-creating the show and and being the co-showrunner. You know, obviously it's different because it's based in reality. So you're not going to get necessarily the monsters that you
1: get. But it still very much has, and I've seen about half of it, yeah, It has a language of horror.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's so, like, I think one of the things about Channel Zero that made it so upsetting is it's so clingy, like some, like a lot of the monsters want to get in touch with you and touch you and hold on to you and grip you and like put their fucking hands in your mouth. And like,
1: it's, I mean, it's, it's this thing that is so central about horror to me is that it is going to make you have prolonged contact with a sensation you viscerally don't want to have. Yes.
0: Yes. And I'm, I'm stealing this straight up from Noel Carroll's, the philosophy of horror where he defines like horror in art as being based on, it's not just something that you're afraid of. It's something that you feel like you don't want to touch it um, right. because it's impure in right. some way. Right. So what the act does brilliantly is take that aspect of channel zero and transfer it to this hideously enmeshed relationship between the mother played by Patricia Arquette and the daughter played by Joey King, who is the victim of the mother's Munchausen by proxy syndrome, and just the like the the unbearable intimacy of this relationship, like years after that kind of physical intimacy is appropriate. Like I think that's probably why. I, I i think of it so much in concert with channel zero is because in a yeah, lot of there ways is,
1: there is a foulness to it
0: right the horror comes from the same set of sensations there's really no shortage of superlatives that i can heap on this show i think it's so smart so scary so worth your time you know in in, in a better world it would be in the conversation with all these canonical shows that we're talking about
1: yeah. And I, I do think that it has gained quite a bit of social cred. I mean, you know, very popular people like Trevor Henderson are really into it. Um, and it's it's more visible now than it was when it was on. Yeah. Is my impression, um, which, you know, too little too late, but it's still gratifying to see it get some of its due because it's really – I mean, I've never seen anything do with the fourth season of Channel Zero Dead. And I'm thinking very particularly about the moment with the baby, which is straight out of Eraserhead. And it's the flip side of this. It's the holding of the repellent mm. with tenderness. Yeah. It's about taking these parts of yourself that are failed and cannot survive and are not viable and cradling them. And giving them understanding. And that's, that's such a incredibly powerful thing.
0: Yeah. And I think channel four, channel four, season four of channel zero really kind of flips the script on the other three seasons and is more about trying to um, reintegrate your personality with the aspects of it that horrify you or that you're ashamed of. That's, that was a really great point, Gretchen. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Every season of that show is just uh, a totally unique gem.
0: I I can't. And and that's the thing like that. They're basically like self-contained movies. The episodes are not super long. So you can easily watch a season of channel zero in a day or two over a weekend. And I really recommend that you do. Um, It's so good.
1: Sundown, get comfortable and just go until you're done. You will not regret it. (sighs)
0: Fantastic show. Where do we go from here?
1: Well, I think the next logical jump um to my mind would be American crime story. Yeah.
2: Reaching out in a piercing cry It stays with you until
1: is a, a show again that I did not immediately pick up on because why would I be interested in watching something Ryan Murphy was doing right uh, yeah. and then it turns out that he's really just kind of casting and producing and both seasons of the show that exists so far are totally astonishing
0: yeah I really couldn't believe it like you know when the people versus OJ Simpson first aired it was like winter and spring of 2016 i didn't get to to the summertime because i just thought a show that twitter is freaking out about about the oj trial created by ryan murphy it's not a show for me that was my thinking it's not a show for me maybe it's for some people but not for me but i heard eventually like the din of acclaim broke me down and i was like all right let's watch an episode and it's i Again, I'm at a loss for words about how how much better it is than it needed to be to be something that people would freak out about from that, from from Murphy and from FX. And, and you know, with that subject matter, it could have coasted so easily.
1: It is so buck wild to me that the best show I watched that year featured a tiny Kim Kardashian. (laughs)
0: Yes. Oh, my God, as a character in the show. Because of her dad being one of his lawyers and like. And his best friend, a lot of the people versus O.J. Simpson is stunt casting. There's Cuba Gooding Jr. is in it, and David Schwimmer David is in Hammer. it, and John Travolta is in it. Nathan oh my Le- god,
1: John Travolta as, like, this Vincent D'Onofrio as Edgar the Bug League performance? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he he looks like someone sewed him into his skin.
0: Like I, I think that was the way I joked, like, his performance is like a performance that would win an Emmy on an alien planet for the actor who best portrayed a human being.
1: Right. He's like an alien actor giving a performance that'll win an alien Emmy. Yes. Um, and it is. It's incredible. Yeah. Everyone on that show really brings it. I, I don't know the name of the actor who plays Chris Darden, but he has so much natural confidence. And Sterling it K. Makes Brown. It,
0: what was that? Sterling K. Brown.
1: Thank you. He's incredible. Um, When he breaks, which is frequently, it makes it just hit every time. Yeah. That dude's I mean, it's, real, it's wild. He, he's a
0: real fucking deal. Yeah. And, and, Sarah um,
1: Paulson, who, I still think that her like loyalty to the, the cinematic universe of Ryan Murphy is perhaps misguided, but she's astonishing in that as mm-hmm. Marsha Clark, she's like, it's absolutely not a role that had to be dimensional at all. And instead they make it this incredibly complex portrait of this woman caught in the public eye and how she's both prickly and vulnerable and like demanding and insensitive and also extremely empathetic. In, in a lot this, of ways, this is the of OJ I think is so fascinating
0: Yeah, because I think they proceed from the assumption that OJ Simpson can never allow himself to believe that he actually did what he did. Right. Because there's no connivance in that performance, the way Cuba Gooding Jr. plays it. Like, you don't. People spin for him. He doesn't spin beyond saying that he didn't do it.
1: Right. In fact, anytime he tries to elaborate on how he didn't do it, he just goes into like a near psychotic babble.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, because he is like you know, at that point in his life, he's a broken down, painkiller addicted man.
0: God, remember the fucking nightclub scene where they ha- they're playing everybody dance now. We're by- gonna make you sweat, whatever it's called, by CNC Music Factory, and he's out there partying with David Schwimmer. Oh my uh, god! The thing that most impressed me about the show, besides the range of performances from an incredible uh, from an incredible range of actors, is that. It's about so many overlapping third rails of American society that, like, it's a a miracle the set didn't burn down, right? Right. Because you're dealing with-
1: And then, even more astonishingly, they find, like, the corner of Americana that they haven't touched for the second season, which is about the assassination of Gianni Versace by young gay man Andrew Cunanan.
0: Yeah, it was like that, well, we didn't get to that in OJ, so now we're going to dedicate a whole fucking season to it.
1: Right, to, to this kind of, like, transitional period in homophobia and gay existence and AIDS and, oh, my God, what a show. What a show about, like, conflicted gayness and denial of the self and delusion and dreams about who you are. I mean, that's one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. Yep.
0: Yep. And I couldn't believe they did it again, you know? like I was like,
1: they did it again! How do they and do again, it? And again, it's stunt casting, you know? Fucking Darren Criss is Andrew Cunanan. Right. <laughs> the, the, the fucking guy from Glee.
0: And Penelope Cruz is... is uh,
1: Donatella Versace.
0: Donatella Versace, thank you. It's Gianni and, Versace. he
1: got that fantastic Mushmouth Delivery.
0: Oh, it's so funny.
1: Ricky Martin plays... <laughs> Gianni Versace's lover.
0: And it's so moving in that role.
1: It, it, I mean, you know, he's he's playing a version of his own life. Yeah. And, like, the,
0: you know, the, some of the stuff is so moving. Like, at the funeral for Versace, oh um, where the priest presiding over it won't take his hand. Like, oh. that happened. You can see it. And, once again, like, a, a lot of overlapping stuff. You have homophobia, both external and internalized you have race and passing um, class class abuse child abuse which they like they're very canny about like how how explicit they want to be with that but you can read between the lines very clearly i think and, right i um, think
1: there's no version in which andrew has not been through incest
0: right Oh, man.
1: God, I, I, that scene where he comes home broken down and his mother is bathing him, and she starts sniffing at him like an animal is just so viscerally upsetting to me.
0: Yep. And I also want to say, in both seasons, season one is more played for laughs, I think, generally speaking, with the music cues, but they're fantastic. Season two has a couple of my all-time favorite music cues when he hears... Um, when. They play Vienna by Ultravox as he's walking through Miami after having committed the crimes. Um and then when he's driving from one murder to the next in a stolen car, Gloria comes on. Gloria, I think they got your number, Gloria. And he like he like he very self consciously is like, Oh, I'm having a moment now. I'm gonna turn the volume up, I'm gonna sing out the window. Like it's so like the conscious construction of the spontaneous moment by a person who's never done anything spontaneously except murder somebody. That's some shit, man.
1: Oof. Yeah, it really is. That that deployment of um, Vienna by Ultravox is one of the greatest music cues I've seen on TV. I mean, the way that it's this song about dedicating your entire life to things that you claim to care nothing about. Mm-hmm. About pouring yourself into a performance of not caring.
0: Yeah, because Midge, voice voice like, fucking soars as he sings, this means nothing to me. And it's like, he's
1: lying. Right, it means it, everything to him. Yep. Yep. It, it's it's his whole life. It's Andrew is attempting, from the moment we see him, to be the guy who tosses his sweater back over his shoulder and stretch to the country club.
0: Oh, Jesus, when he walks into the party wearing the Eddie Murphy red leather suit.
1: Oh my God. He's one thing that show does beautifully is show you how close, how close he got to having some kind of normal life. Yeah. And it just, it could not survive.
0: That is, and I I, I am very, uh, I don't know. I'm almost like morbidly curious. The third season is going to be about Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. Right. The Monica Lewinsky situation. And I don't, Know what to expect because Ryan Murphy's position amid like sort of Hollywood sort of representational liberalism. I don't know if you're going to get a story about Hillary Clinton in part about Hillary Clinton that that you or I are going to dig. I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. But I never would have thought I- we would get one about the other two seasons either. So,
1: oh man, guess- you know there are two actors on the assassination of Gianni Versace who I think really deserve credit and recognition. One is John, John Brioni who plays Modesto yeah, and Andrew's father. And in the space of one episode, he makes you feel like he's been on the show the whole time. I mean, he's incredible. He has so much presence. He has so much like vitality and his whole thing is so clear without anyone ever spelling it out. And he just, he snaps Andrew into focus as a person. It, It makes, each episode makes the preceding episodes better.
0: Yeah, it's it's a cumulative thing because of the way it bounces back and forth. Through um, time, right. Through time, yeah. Really effectively. And who's was who's the other person you wanted to single out?
1: It's the actress who plays Marilyn Miglin.
0: Judith Light. From Who's Thank the Fucking you. Boss from when I was a kid. Yeah. She was a sitcom star with Tony Danza.
1: Yeah, and she gives this performance that is all about the sort of brittle armor of upper class white femininity and how she actually does have incredible personal strength and fortitude through it. And but it's, it's yeah. It's harrowing. Yeah. Cuz she she plays
0: opposite Mike Farrell who is BJ Honeycut from MASH yep. as Lee Miglin, who's a closeted businessman who gets involved with Andrew and is killed by him. A lot of this is conjecture and nobody actually really knows for sure what their relationship was. But what becomes important to Marilyn in dealing with her husband's death is not seeing that this is possible. Right. And Judith Light, as an actor, like if you've ever seen her, like she's got this, like, she looks like she's like a, like a, from Renaissance Italy somehow. Like she's just got this, like, very sharp face, very severe. There's this tension that's almost unbearable every time she's on screen after that murder takes place where she cannot admit to it. And then she's doing her makeup in the mirror, if I recall correctly one time. And it's just like,
1: that's, that's the scene that cements that performance for me. Yeah, That, that conscious construction and deconstruction of herself. And it's, it's so clear that that will be the rest of her life is putting together the costume of the person who will refuse to believe this thing. Yep. Yeah. And, and will will banish it from her own mind. In a way, she's
0: like successful at doing what Andrew couldn't. Right. Like she can, she can live the lie in a way that he was unable to. And f- from what reserves of strength y- you can you can draw that kind of life is it's beyond me. Man, that's a good performance. It's a good show. It's really, really good.
1: I feel like anthology TV has produced a lot of strong, varied, interesting television.
0: I would agree. And there's tons of stuff I haven't even watched, you know, um, th- that's including things I don't like. Like um, what's the fuck? Not orange is the new black, black mirror. Oh, right. Um, you know, that's not, that's not season anthologies. That's episodic anthology, which I've seen a few episodes of and have no real pressing need to see any more
1: yeah i think it's pretty lazy and stupid honestly Yeah.
0: yeah but yeah channel zero an american crime story fargo Fargo is so much better than it probably has a right to be.
1: (laughs) Right. It's, It's taking this like initial grammar from the Coen brothers film and sort of the Coen brothers whole cinematic oeuvre. And it spins it into this way of telling a story. That's sort of like a, an offbeat kind of black hole parable. Yeah. And every season, again is fantastic in a really distinct way, even sometimes despite significant shortcomings.
0: Yeah, like I think probably season four, the most recent one, is the slightest of the four. Yeah. But it has if it's not my favorite scene from the entire show, it's way, way up there. It's like top two or three, which is literally the like the final 30 second stinger. After Oof. the final episode. Yeah. Um, which is 30 seconds of silence. And I, I just I made the whole season click into place for me. I was like, "Wow, it's that's a motherfucker!" Far. Yeah, and that takes skill to do that. Like to to be like, "Here's where I'm going to hit you with it." Not at any right. point during the right. actual. Right. Yes, just the, it'll be the last thing you see. I'm gonna. It's like hitting. It's like I'm I'm actually making with my fingers like like I'm I'm holding a dart, <laughs> and I'm I'm like throwing it pinpoint accuracy right at the bullseye, right at the very end. It's a buzzer beater. It's amazing, and uh, season two of Far of Fargo with Zahn McLarnan's character Hansi e. Dent.
1: My God!
0: For people who haven't seen it, he's a Native American adoptee of this German American crime family who treat him like a dog's body. You know, More like not- a dog, or like a dog, right? Depends. And
1: on- he he grows in that plot like a tumor.
0: Yep. It winds up culminating. In an unbelievably bloody shootout, and then subsequent to that, a sort of dream sequence that is interspersed with uh, dream narrative, interspersed with things that really happened. Um, soundtrack to War Pigs by Black Sabbath,
1: oh my which when you want to talk
0: about music cues,
1: that monologue that she gives recounting her dream, yeah, about Walmart of all fucking things, yep. will take your breath away.
0: And, you know, I'm saying all this despite the fact that the creator of the show, Noah Hawley, made one of my least favorite television shows of the past however long in in Legion.
1: Oh, yeah. Legion is garbage.
0: Which I really couldn't stand. And I think a lot of the criticism that Fargo gets is better levied at Legion. And when Legion came out, it was right, it was just before Twin Peaks season three aired. Mm -hmm. And you would see people say things like, do we really need a Twin Peaks season three? I mean, we have Legion
1: Uh, and like, it's the
0: kind of thing that makes you want to launch yourself out of window, like a Monty Python sketch. Like,
1: right. You um, know, it's God earlier today. I saw someone tweet that we've never had anything more avant-garde on television in the literal sense of the word. These are their words than WandaVision. Yeah. I mean, it really does just make you want to bite down until your teeth break. (sighs) But but <laughs> a curation and understanding and analysis of beautiful art is never going to be for everyone, and that's okay. And the world we live in is one in which people who are neither informed nor educated nor particularly perceptive are allowed to make sweeping declarations whenever they want, and in some cases rise to positions of prominence within their fields.
2: Yeah. And, and
1: they that's make- that's all right. It really has nothing to do with our lives. <sighs>
0: They make you feel like Daniel Plainview saying you can't keep doing this on your own with these dot, dot, <laughs> dot people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we can struggle past it and we can move through it and we can move on with our lives. It's a beautiful I think, thing.
1: I mean, we've we've talked now for four hours about the television of the past few decades. And I think it would not be hard for us to talk for another two hours
0: that's very there's true.
1: So, I mean, ultimately, this is like how I think of our corner of the critical world where you and I are writing and working. It's a place where there's such a strong, genuine desire to see something incredible. Yeah. You know, we're going out there not because we want to rip things to shreds or be cynics or tell everyone that their favorite show is stupid but because we want to find something amazing and we want to be moved and we want to, we want to touch God's face, you know, just for a second.
0: Well, that's beautifully put Gretchen. I don't know how to top that.
1: Maybe we should just stop there. I guess so. And I still feel like there's so many shows that we could talk about. It's crazy. Oh my, we haven't even touched Battlestar Galactica.
0: Battlestar Galactica. We have a new, like we barely mentioned the Americans and better call Saul are, are my, are quiet boys god bless them
1: beautiful quiet boys um well maybe another day
0: yeah yeah there's always room for more well thanks so much for coming back i really appreciate it i know it wound up being a pretty late night and um
1: oh thanks for having me this was great i've been looking forward to it all week
0: oh great i'm glad to hear that well that does it for us for now thank you everyone for listening once again and we'll see you next time